Hello and welcome to the Massage Matters podcast. With us, the Massage Collective, we are Becky DeMott-Horton, Matt Scarsbrook and Anna Maria Mazzieri, three soft tissue therapists uh, with a lot to say and usually not enough time to say it in. Let's get clinical, clinical. <sighs> Sorry, Anna's distracted me. <laughs> I was trying really hard not to lose the plot there. I was thinking about unicorns. Thank you for joining us again today. Um, we've got a really interesting topic to talk about today. We're going to be um, thinking about um, adhesive capsulitis or more commonly known as frozen shoulder. And what we as massage or manual therapists, soft tissue therapists uh, can do to help people that are suffering with it. What's the evidence around it? And where do we play a role in, in helping people who are living with it? So I'm going to kick off by asking Anna to just give us a brief, or as brief as possible on quite a complex um, topic, description of um, anyone that's not come across the term or not familiar with the term. What do we mean by adhesive capsulitis or frozen shoulder? Well, thank you, Becky, for that. Um, it's going to be really hard to speak about such a complex topic in a podcast and about here we are let's try about let's try it so to your question you know it's interesting that, that you, you you mentioned about adhesive capsulitis uh, I'd say that um, we the term we're moving away from the term adhesive capsulitis because it's not reflective of what's happening in the shoulder. In fact, it, it was taken, it, it, the adhesive capsulitis came from, a, in the 1940s, from a surgeon who uh, observed that during surgeries that there was adhesions between the humeral head and the capsule. But actually, we know that now that it's not happening. The pathophysiology per se is a little bit different. And um, so we are moving more towards the term actually frozen shoulder or even better frozen shoulder sin syndrome. It is, it, it is such a disabling condition. It's disabling in terms of function, but it's disabling much more in terms of pain. For all of you, for, for all of you know, We've experienced people with frozen shoulders in our clinics and the classic sign is pain, debilitating pain, pain at night, pain that is constant. And we must, you know, we need to be very careful with that. We need to make sure that it's frozen shoulder because as we know, pain can be a, a red flag. Pain is a pain that doesn't change. Pain at night is a red flag for, for other um, possible conditions, which are a little bit more severe. What are those, how do people with uh, frozen shoulders come to us with? What are the clinical, what is the clinical pictures? They usually are the age of, four, the age of 50, more or less. Uh, women seems to be uh, more likely to come to, uh, more likely to de develop a frozen shoulder. In fact, uh, there is some evidence is three times more likely to develop frozen shoulders than men, but it is not conclusive. A, a feature is sudden onset of severe pain and restriction of movement, both active and passive. So it's... Uh... And, and Anna, do you, um, is there any evidence to suggest or do you, from your clinical experience, um, notice any particular um, range of motions that are, are affected by frozen shoulder. Yes, no, that that's quite clear. The the affected range is external external rotation and abduction. That it's that is one of the things that we know is is dramatically affected. And the interesting thing is they will uh, they will come to you first because they have lost the abduction and they don't realize that they lost the external rotation. But that's why when I said it, it, it interferes with independence because brushing the hair, putting the arm behind the back to undo or do your bra washing under your arm. So those are, those are, those are you know, functional daily activities that a person with frozen shoulder are really struggling. But the pain, the pain is debilitating. Yeah. 
That's that's the one thing, Anna, that's always stuck with me that you, you said to me in training, and it's always one that sets alarm bells off with me, is women that come in and say, do you know what, I have to keep getting my partner to help me put my bra on. It's 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 a real classic one, isn't it? So um, we, we try not to get too... Um, there's lots of great podcasts out there and lots of great educators that will go into the ins and outs of the pathology with with frozen shoulder syndrome. And we don't want to get too bogged down on that, but would like to touch on a little bit what what we know about what's going on when somebody's experiencing these symptoms and how the pathology is different to um, just a, a, a normal, if for want of a better word, uh, shoulder pain and restriction in movement. So I wonder, Matt, if you could just give us a a, a kind of <laughs> rundown of that. No, absolutely. And and I, I want to start really by um, picking up on a paper. When I was doing some research for this, I found a, a fabulous um, kind of letter to the editor uh, from 1985 in the BMJ. Um, and the, 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 the letter uh, was basically saying, um, is it time for a new name for frozen shoulder? So, you know, this was back in 1985. Um, and at this point it was, it was, you know, they allude to that, that sort of 1940s origin of adhesive capsulitis. Uh, and, and actually interestingly, um, question whether actually the, the, the adhesive bit was meant more like a plaster is adhesive to the skin and it's that peeling off of the synovium off the off the humerus uh, that the, the surgeon saw as opposed to what in this day and age of fascia we we like to think we understand by the term adhesions um, and uh, and then how ironically a frozen shoulder is in fact not frozen it's hot which leads kind of onto onto what we what we're talking about now by the pathology now just for, to caveat that of course we're not saying that you could lay hands on a on a frozen shoulder and feel that it is especially warm and be able to make a diagnosis that way. In fact, uh, a true uh, capsulitis, I'm going to use the term uh, here, um, is is can only really be diagnosed uh, by X-ray. Um, when the X-ray comes back clear for nothing else going on inside the joint, um, and what what we understand now is happening in that capsulitis is that the there there is there is something that kicks off an inflammatory pathway basically it could be a a direct injury it could be secondary to underlying conditions uh, such as uh, diabetes is is a common one where um, inflammatory markers tend to be raised in the body anyway but but fundamentally uh, an inflammatory pathway is kicked off and um, within the shoulder especially you end up with uh, something called angiogenesis where you're getting um, uh, a proliferation of blood vessels uh, and alongside that you get um, uh, more uh, immune cells known as uh, myofibroblasts responding and and fundamentally inducing the production of more collagen that collagen gets laid down haphazardly, you know, sort of think akin to early scar tissue formation. And fundamentally, then what you get is a thickening of the, the capsule around the uh, around the, the head of the humerus. And so it, it, it appears to be this inflammatory pathway that leads to this thickening um, uh, and, and fundamentally then reduced um, uh, reduced movement that we see. It's been compared to the Puritans contracture. They found that the same, mm. uh, the same process of um, myoblast um, and uh, fibroblasts processes are the same that the Puritans contractures, which is quite interesting. But for a long, but for a long time, we 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 didn't really know. And 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 as a as a manual therapist, uh, with someone coming and presenting with a stiff and painful shoulder we can't just leap to, to frozen shoulder. And, and again, just alluding back to this, this wonderful letter from 1985, um, they were sort of saying almost the problem is that the term frozen shoulder trips off the tongue so easily that it, it therefore just becomes the go-to and it isn't really a diagnosis until effectively everything else has been eliminated. Um, now bear in mind back then they didn't have quite the same level of, um, uh, ability to scan and, and, and view the joint that we do now. But what I love is um, uh, a bit where the, the authors, this is uh, Tim Bunker, who, who from, from down your neck of the woods, guys, um, the Royal Devon and Exeter Hospital. Um, 
was talking about how the painful shoulder remains an enigma. Um, as mysterious as before the advent of the arthroscope, a painful knee. You know, it was really hard to tell what was going on inside a knee before we invented the arthroscope, and and how doctors would, if they were honest, write on their notes uh, the diagnosis of IDK, an acronym IDK, and apparently translated to the patient that was an internal derangement of the knee. But between medical professionals, it was I don't know. Um, and so this author of this particular paper, when reflecting back on the shoulder, he suggested he'd like to use the interim term of HGAC, um, which apparently is humor, humoroglenoid acromioclavicular syndrome, painful shoulder, uh, but also translates to haven't got a clue. <laughs> yeah, going back to this name, I, I, that's, that's, uh, going back to the name, I, I think also Jeremy Lewis has a, a real really big point here, I think in, in one of his papers, I think it's 2015 or 2016, where he says that the term frozen shoulder per se is a little bit reductionist and not very correct also because frozen shoulder, it gives a little bit of implication, implies that it will self-resolve, that eventually the frozen will thaw. And evidence is showing us that this is not always the case. In fact, uh, people have symptoms and pain seven years after, some of them even 11 years after. after. And also, it's, uh, again, Jeremy Lewis says it doesn't take, the, the term itself doesn't take very much into consideration the experience of the, the person in pain. So I thought it was... Yeah, that, that of time. Oh, sorry, Becky. I was going to say that length of time. Actually, that's a really it's a really key thing, isn't it? Particularly when you're having a conversation. Let's let's say, for example, that you someone is referred to you or they self refer, having previously got that diagnosis of frozen shoulder. So we're we're talking here about a uh, a true capsulitis. Um, there is there is the kind of period of time that most people familiar with the term are are, are, are you know. Are familiar with which is you know 12 to 18 months worth of uh going through this process of the freeze the uh the frozen and the thawing stage which we, which we, we can touch on but what i found really interesting was was actually that the the larger studies suggest that the mean amount of time is actually more like 30, 30 months 30 more, wow. um, and actually you know the range there can be well as you say up to seven years worth of symptoms but but perhaps more generally if that's an outline more generally anywhere between 12 and 42 months i mean we're, we're talking here this can be a really long-lasting condition for individuals but that's not a period of time where actually they can do nothing and we can do a lot to help them and I, I, I definitely want to come back to that in a bit more detail, both around the the, the timeframes involved with um, with this and also the, the, the language and, and stuff we use around that. I just want to, before we kind of disappear off down those rabbit holes, want to just bring this back to the massage manual therapist and what they might experience in clinic. And I wonder if if we could just think about what your approach would be if, if you know, you've, you've got a client who's come in for their first appointment because they've been getting some shoulder pain, you do your assessments and actually we, you, you see that clinical picture that Anna, you so eloquently described. So there's that, the sudden onset of severe pain, that the, the, the constant nature of the pain, the pain at night, um, the restriction in movement that we described there. So, you you know, you've got that. And we're very clear that it's without, it's outside of our scope of practice to diagnose. And as Matt said, actually true diagnosis needs imaging. Um, but we've got those suspicions that's got, that, that that might be what's going on in this case. I wonder what your approach would be with that client, Anna. So that's, that's an excellent question. So if, if I have suspicion that is a frozen shoulder. I still will treat on the day, but I will definitely refer. Uh, I refer why? Because as I, as, I, as I mentioned before, we need to be good clinicians and we need to assess that there are no red flags. The constant nature of pain, the pain at night could be hiding or could be masquerading something else 
And it's not to me as a soft tissue therapist, my, I keep my threshold of referral fairly low. So in these cases, I refer to the GP because what could it be? It could be a locked dislocation. It could be a fracture. It could be a vascular necrosis. If there is history of cancer, it could be a, an osteosarcoma. I will not know. There is no way I can differentiate with the only thing I can differentiate is is active restricted, is passive restricted. There might be a capsulitis or it might not. So I I will treat and we I know that we'll be discussing about treatment. I will treat, but I also want the the person, my client, to go to the GP and to have the diagnosis confirmed. Then don't always go down to the X-ray route, although as Matt alluded to, um, the the clinical diagnosis is those restriction of movements, restriction in active and passive, and clear X-ray. But I leave the GP to to actually take that decision. To me, as a soft tissue therapist, because those signs and symptoms could be something else, I want the firm diagnosis. Yeah, I think that's that's a great point, Anna. So if we if we move on slightly, if we um, assume that our our client now has their their diagnosis has either been cleared by the GP of red flags and they've they've said to their client that it's a suspected frozen shoulder or or indeed they've gone down a physio route and we're working in line with a physio. Um, I'd like to to chat really about I guess come back to that time frame and the the disabling nature of of a frozen shoulder or capsulitis um and how we help them with that and I, I was thinking about this today and I was I, I was trying to kind of put myself in that I'm fortunate enough to have not suffered with it and I was trying to put myself in that space and um I thought, okay, so if somebody said to me, or oh, you, you've got frozen shoulder syndrome. So I did a quick Google search. And as most things, when you Google search them, it's pretty bloody terrifying. And if I was in that level of pain and um, suddenly couldn't put my own bra on or brush my hair or, or, or do basic daily activities, uh, maybe play the sport that I want to play, I think I'd be pretty depressed <laughs> having been given that diagnosis and, and got a little bit of information about it. So I want to, and we, we often say that, that one of the advantages of what we do is we, we get that luxury of time with our clients and where they might have had 10 minutes with their GP who would have done their very best to explain to them in 10 minutes what, what's going on. We've maybe got the luxury of giving them a little bit more time to explore the condition. I wonder what your two opinions on how we find a balance between being realistic, giving realistic um, expectations and managing that um, side of things without terrifying somebody and without um, making them seem like they're in for a three-year prison sentence of not being able to, to move their shoulder. Matt, do you want to expand on that? Yeah, well, I think... I think I think you have to be realistic, um, and and that is that is tough sometimes. Sometimes we do have to not deliver bad news as such, but we do have to be very careful when it comes to setting expectations for outcome. Um, and I think actually, if you get um, if you get that sorted really early on with the client, you're in for a much better relationship throughout you know, throughout the condition uh, than if you sort of pretend it'll all be all right within a few months and 12 months later, nothing's really improved. So I think being realistic is important. Now, at uh, this point, yeah, we're talking as if this is a a, a confirmed capsulitis. Um, but of course, the, there is such thing as just a stiff and painful shoulder, which um, again, you know, we've cleared red flags, there's no other issues, but actually there's something going on which is causing muscle guarding. Now that can resolve relatively quickly with the right approach, and perhaps we'll touch on that towards uh, towards the end, but of course we're focusing here on, on the true capsulitis. And in, in which case we do have to sort of acknowledge and help the client acknowledge that whilst the timelines are highly variable, there is a there is a fairly common path in the way that these things develop um, that most 
people seem to experience a period of time of a lot of pain. And I mean, a lot of pain, the kind of thing that brings tears to your eyes when, you know, you knock it in bed and things like that, that then goes into a period of not really that painful, but more stiff. And you, you're just incapable of doing your activities, but it, it doesn't necessarily hurt that much um, uh, before finally seemingly freeing up again. Okay. So there, there does seem to be this, this sort of, can, this, this reasonably predictable pattern, what we can't predict is how long each stage lasts um, and, and to what extent they're going to affect the individual. But I think having that conversation and, and helping provide expectations to say, look, you know, if, if this is my what almost my very first client uh straight out of qualifications so you'll you know always remember your first um was a uh, an italian lady and actually i don't know if uh, if anna, anna maria remembers this because i was <laughs> I contacted anna i was like i might need some translation here um <laughs> was um she was visiting a daughter in the uk uh she spoke no english at all and so it was all done through translation with her daughter and basically she'd arrived um, she'd been having real issues with her shoulder for the last couple of weeks back at home, but was coming over for a holiday. And I was in a position where I couldn't get a GP um, referral because she wasn't a resident of the country. She was here on holiday. Um, she didn't want to go to, uh, to hospital, um, but she was displaying essentially all signs and symptoms of a very increasingly painful and stiff shoulder. So um, I, I made the decision to treat very conservatively whilst providing her with information that she could then take back to, to her medics. Because I was only going to, I think I saw her maybe three times over the course of two weeks, just while she was in the UK. Um, and predominantly, a lot of that to begin with was reassurance. It was reassurance that there is an end to this. We don't quite know when, but we do have some uh, evidence to support that uh, there are things that we can do to help maintain as much range of movement as possible. So bear in mind this, again, this is seeing someone very early in, in, in the stage. We can't know how far it's going to go for that individual, but we can definitely help um, maintain as much range of motion as possible uh, through encourage them to be through activity. We can reassure them that, uh, again, we, we, we have no remit when it comes to uh, painkillers uh, uh, and things. But in a sense, if they get permission from the GP, there is no harm in taking some pain relief in order to manage this pain. Because, again, here we really are talking um, hurt without harm. You know, they're not, they're not going to break the shoulder off. It, it might feel like it, but, but it's not going to. So they can afford to, to take some pain relief. Um, and we can provide some manual therapy relief if that works for them. Um, and it is a very individual, particularly in the early phase. Yeah, coming, um, linking to that, Matt, uh, the fact that the, the stiffness, uh, uh, that they're going to be into those three phases, you know, not all, the pain is not always going to be excruciating. There's been a paper coming out, a paper that came out last, last year from Liesbeth, and uh, it says that... Um, what they found is that perceived stiffness is definitely linked to pain intensity. The perceived stiffness is not related to the clinical structural factors, but this is even more, in, more interesting that the function of the shoulder or the arm was related to fear and pain catastrophizing. Mm. So, while we can, while we have to be realistic in the pain, and that's why that's why I, I work. I very often recommend them to to go to the GP to discuss pain medications. Uh, there is some of the stiffness, some of the pain, which is actually due to some beliefs and cognitive. Um, uh, kind of yes to 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 their beliefs so there is plenty that that we can do and isn't that fascinating that e even in a um condition that we've traditionally seen as a very biomechanical condition we've got you know as matt explained there there's this very clear pathology with it that there is stuff going on in that shoulder for whatever reason there's still this um impact of of context and beliefs and past experience that that like Anna says we can really nicely intercept on that and 
in my experience with um, people suffering with with this condition, actually, the people that I've seen with it ha- have been genuine, generally quite realistic uh, uh, and quite well informed. They've actually had really good service from the clinicians that they've seen before coming to me they probably were my client first Uh, obviously Anna (laughs) obviously I was thinking about GPs but you know obviously you because you're God so yeah um um, and actually what they've wanted is is kind of like the the GP's done all they can do maybe the physio's done all that, that that they can do um what they want now is sign of someone on their team kind of someone to go okay this is this is going to persist for a period of time, um, but I want someone that I can come and speak to, however often they feel they need to, who can help me figure out what's going on at that time, and and I think we've got a, a brilliant role to play there, and we we are going to come on to I promise talk about some actual um, manual therapy in terms of treatment. Um, we we can help in terms of that that pain management if that's something that 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 particular individual finds helpful but also we can be that sounding board to go okay right now at this stage in your um frozen shoulder like tennis isn't possible you know that's that's not something that's possible for you what other things can we find that you might find enjoyable what other clubs can you get involved in how can we fill that void that that's existed there how can we maybe modify the activities that you do enjoy to keep you involved and and I think that's and it's it's sometimes I think as as simple as that it they can come and tell you how frustrating it is they can come and tell you the impact that they're having on your lives and you together as a team can work through okay we have to accept that that's the impact that this is having right now how can we change things for you how can we make that doable and I think that that's a really lovely way that we can help people out yeah, it's it's that it's that proactivity, isn't it? It's it's I like I love that I love that reflection of of they want someone on their team, and it is it is a it is a you know how can I support you to do what is meaningful for you? And what's what's really nice about that approach is again, if we're talking capsulitis, then there just is there seems to be a a relatively natural progression. If, however, it's been misdiagnosed, um, and that rather than a, you know, again, no, no, no horrible pathology, no, no red flag here, but instead it is a, a stiff and painful shoulder, muscle guarding, lots of psychosocial elements building into that. Then again, that exact same approach is actually going to really reap rewards for that individual, and they're going to start seeing some really, uh, really great benefit as a result of exactly that same approach. So, you know assuming that your GP has given you the all clear to to carry on, you almost can't go wrong with that approach. Yeah. And I, I had a lovely case actually of, um, she was in fact a, a lady from my cycling club and um, she, she did have, you know, a full on um, true capsulitis that persisted for about two years. Um, and it, she just, for her, it was just having that reassurance. She came to me and she said, look, she loved cycling. That's what her, her social life was built around her and her husband cycled together. It was a big part of her life. And she said to me, it's, it's really painful when I cycle, but I am prepared to put up with that pain because I want to go cycling. Is it doing me any harm? And and that's literally all she wanted. Like you say, Matt, she'd, she'd been cleared of all those red flags. Um, she just wanted to say somebody to say, if you can put up with it, crack on. Because if if the if the value of the cycling outweighs putting up with the pain in the shoulder, you're not doing any harm. And that's all she wanted to know. And and we supported her through that. And you know, and she came for a treatment when things got a little bit tiring in terms of the pain. Um, and we just managed it through that. And we found ways on her bike that she could be a little bit more comfortable. Um, we admittedly put in a few more cake stops so that it gave her shoulder a little bit of a rest. At least that was my excuse. You know, it, it is, it's things like, it's things like that, isn't it? So, so why, don't, why don't you build on that then and, and, and maybe use that case as a, so what were you doing treatment wise? 
Okay, so this was a lady, um, interestingly, before she had the capsulitis, she would come for treatments anyway. She just generally enjoyed massage. So we knew that that was um, a positive experience for her. Um, So initially, when things were very, very painful, um, that's all I was doing with her was um, some gentle massage, um, making sure that it, you know, it was tolerated all the time. Quite often I do a lot of work, um, not even particularly focused on the shoulder. So we we do some work on the shoulder. We do work on the arm into the hand because it was, you know, it was affecting the way that she felt her hand was working and, and some sensations in that. I do some lower back stuff because that was relaxing for her and, and she felt that that was pleasant. Um, as things progressed, um, we did a little bit more movement with the massage. So a bit of what you might call myofascial techniques, whatever you want to call them. But, you know, I would um, have hands on and I would be gently moving the arm whilst a, a massage stroke was done in the opposite direction. Um, we developed that into a little bit of um, soft tissue release technique. So creating a little bit of a lock and and giving into a stretch into that. And eventually we got into some kind of um, muscle energy techniques um, and some moving of the arm. How lovely oh. because, sorry, Becky, how, just when you were saying that, I was just getting the, the picture in my head and how lovely that you are exposing the, the person to a movement that normally they would consider not safe, that normally mm. they would think this is painful. In, in a safe environment with a therapist that, has a good therapeutic relationship, therapeutic alliance, and how wonderful and how how helpful that is. It helps them to the reconceptualize the pain. And you you will not make any change. We cannot make any changes to the capsule or to the process. But hey, oh, can we make any changes to the pain? Yes, we can. And also, I, I like that point about the safety, Anna, because I often think mm. about that again, trying to put myself in their shoes. How vulnerable must you feel if you suddenly lose a movement? You know, this 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 lady in particular, she had um, you know, she had children that she looked after, one of whom was disabled. So she she had quite a physical um job looking after him. Um her her work was quite physical, and suddenly she'd lost the ability to do some of these things. And I I, I think that must make you feel very vulnerable and very protective. So I think that create it and that's why I guess I go quite slowly with people and ensure that they're always feeling safe so that sorry Anna's distracted me <laughs> I was trying really hard not to lose the plot there that's fine no what well, I mean I would I'd, I'd pick up that thread a little bit on the safety side of things and helping someone feel safe and I'd I'd sort of you know want to discuss from a practical perspective let's go let's go to sort of the first stage that stage when it's it's really frankly scary because it's very painful you're in the process of losing range you feel like your life's been turned upside down and if you have been on dr google you may be looking at three years worth of this and thinking i'm not how do i cope now when they come into clinic from a practical perspective um what considerations uh, would you make in terms of uh positioning them or uh you know helping them on and off the couch or uh supporting their their arm and, and shoulder during treatment what what kind of practical considerations might you have so when we're looking at so if we're going to the real real practicalities of it people with frozen shoulder especially at the at the initial stages where the pain is is excruciating but they still have a little bit of range i would not put them in a prone position because they they struggle with that even if you have your own lovely um armrest there for the arms to go there they find it uncomfortable and because they find it uncomfortable they they tense up and they are not quite sure about the treatment. So I, I do sideline. I absolutely love sideline. My treatment with them starts from the moment in which I assess in them. Because from the moment in which I assess the passive range, the active and passive range of motion, I already there doing a little bit of very, very, very gentle man- mobilization with the shoulder. And in the same, then I continue with massage on sideline. That is excellent. But when you're a sideline, I always put 
something underneath the elbow so that the arm uh, so that the elbow and the shoulder are more or less on the same line or in fact a tiny little bit that the elbow is slightly slightly um, higher than the shoulder and the uh, and the position the arm always bends so I, I shorten the, the the liver a little bit and that seems for them to be really really comfortable and then I just massage especially on the first face or on the the painful face, the initial face, it's reassurance, it's massage for, as, a, as to help them with modulating the pain, is a little bit of movement in a safe environment, just just enough so that it doesn't increase the pain sensitivity, and that's what I would do. And then supine, you can work really really well supine, but always always when you're supine, again bend the elbow. So, like, I have the people to put their hands on the abdomen. And the other things I have them when they're supine to put, you put a little pillow, a little cushion just underneath the back of the humerus, underneath the triceps, so that the arm is not in extension, or sorry, that the shoulder is not in extension mm -hmm. and it's actually slight, slight flexion. The, the, the tissues in front, they are, they're actually slackened. So that that's because clinically, the people that are treated, they find that really, really comfortable. I think it's all about, in, in terms of making them comfortable, it's all about finding that position of ease, isn't it? Especially, at the, at, like you say, Anna, at the beginning where it's less of a priority for us to be challenging them and actually just creating that safe environment and, and giving them. I just, I think if, if, if I was suffering with this, I just want a break from it. Yeah. <laughs> so if you can help them find that position of ease, and actually I, I'm sure you two find this quite often, they lie there and they go, oh, actually, this is really, can I do this at home? Because this is just a comfortable position to get in. So it's, you know, it's, it's, it's finding that just position where it, it's the least painful, I guess. It makes me think as well, and and I can't recall if I have done this, but if I haven't, I certainly will do moving forward. But in, in that kind of position, particularly with hands on the abdomen, um, helping them with some breathing-based exercises, yeah. some yeah. fairly breathing, and in, in, in a sense of, you know, if if we're if we're talking correct breathing, uh, if it's not diaphragmatic, then obviously it's 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 sort of coming from the upper chest, and that could be um unnecessarily pulling on the sort of shoulder accessory muscles so that's kind of one thing that we we might be able to do just to help that individual but but also quite frankly relaxing breathing is a huge pain reliever um and and a really nice way of helping shift shift the focus a little bit you know it's uh, mindfulness effectively shifting shifting uh the attention away from something that is probably absorbing their attention 95 percent of the day and just shifting it to something else that that's also going to help them relax as well. So, yeah, breathe a little bit of uh, a little bit of guided breathing. I think that's a yeah, it's a great point, Matt, and it is it is one I use quite often in a number of situations, but but especially in a case like this because, like I say, it it I guess it's the sudden onset of this nature of this condition as well as the um, the fear around the prognosis. Um, I find personally that people are very, very stressed and concerned about the condition under completely understandably so. Um, and we all know, you know, it's well documented that the, the effect that that then has on pain, you know, stress, lack of sleep, um, it, it, fear has on the pain. So again, it, it's about giving them strategies that they can go home and do to say, you know, look, why don't you get yourself in this position for five minutes of an evening before you go to bed, do some breathing exercises, do some mindfulness if that suits you or, or, or you know, what, whatever you find works for you as a relaxation tool, just because right now this is stressful and it's a worry and it's, it's affecting your life. And also, sorry, and also what I think is really important in terms of the reassurance and the what you said at the beginning, Becky, which I thought it was really powerful because you always say powerful things. Anyway, yeah. I'm awesome. <laughs> um, but when you said to just reassure them and remind them of what they can still do. Yeah. I remember years ago, I had a client with frozen shoulder. She could still roll. Yes. And that was fine. I mean, she had to adapt certain things for it. But she, 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 the rowing helped her manage the, the frozen shoulder and that that for her was a meaningful activity she felt better 
because of doing it. She still had the pain, but the pain didn't become suffering. The pain so, was knowing all encompassing. She could cope yeah. with it because there was things she could do. Yeah, I think that's that's super powerful. So I think what I'd like to touch on now is obviously we, you know, we say we're 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 very evidence-based and we and we like to be accurate in our descriptions of mechanisms. So how do you guys approach how you rationale this treatment with your clients who are suffering with a frozen shoulder? How do you explain what you're doing? Um, and also how do we tackle the dodgy um, area of dependency? We know that this the likelihood is that this is going to be a pers persisting condition for this person. Um, we're mindful that we can be, as I said before, on their team and part of their coping strategy. But obviously, the last thing we want is to to build a dependency or a false narrative that they need to come and see us every X number of weeks. How do you guys go about that? And f again, it's finding a balance, isn't it? Yeah, it is. And uh, team, team is probably the 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 phrase I'd fall on from from what you were saying there. And uh, we we're on their team, but we're merely a member of of, of sort of a larger. Um, and you know, it, it, it entirely comes down to the individual. Some individuals, you know, like your rowing client Anna, will will just find a way to to adjust life and continue as is as much as possible. And that's a really, really positive thing. And they're probably, you know, their support network is probably us periodically when it just gets a bit too much, or frankly, because they just fancy a massage. I mean, they might, they don't, they don't have to have the shoulder massaged. <laughs> you know, she could, could be coming in with do my legs or something. Um, but, but their, you know, their support network is maybe just their family. Whereas someone uh, who is perhaps more vulnerable from the outset, um, you know, perhaps they do have underlying conditions that have um, predisposed them perhaps to 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 frozen shoulder, or that they have uh, underlying mental health conditions that are going to give them high levels of of, of anxiety around it and and low mood. Then. I would, if they hadn't already, again, it's our role really to advise that they seek out other more appropriate help and add members to their team. It could be a counsellor. It could be their GP. It could be making sure they're calling their best mate every couple of days. It, it, it doesn't really matter what it is, but they, you know, it, it, I think it's our role. As much as we would with a, an athlete, we might uh, provide some basic advice on lifestyle and, 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 and you know, general care that way. I think exactly the same applies here. We need to be helping signpost people. In terms of dependency, yeah, that's that's always a tough one. It's always a tough one. But I think if you're having those slightly more challenging conversations to begin with where you're setting expectations yeah. and you're sort of going, look, I am here to facilitate you cracking on with life as normal that might mean once a week for you. It might mean once a month. It might mean I don't see you for six months. But we need to be honest with each other. And if you feel you're struggling without my massage, then that's something we need to explore further and perhaps refer you back to a you know someone uh, more specialist. That would be that would be largely my. That, that's why I, sometimes in my head I, I, I have this a little bit of controversy into my head itself. Uh, that's about helping people to understand why they have the pain or helping, in this case, helping people to understand the pathophysiology of the shoulder itself. Because I, I absolutely hate the term educate because, you know, it creates a, 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 a hierarchy. But I think that for some people, understanding what is happening in the shoulder and what we know of the condition, that I think is in itself is removing some of those fears and actually preventing some of that dependency. Because they actually, if we let them know this is what is happening to the shoulders, there are lots of uncertainties, but what we are there to do is just to support you going through that time, then they know that they can come in if they want to. And they don't need to be in pain or they don't need to have the restriction, the further restriction of movement. Or they don't come to us to get better range of motion. They come to us because they want to, because actually it helps going through the pain. 
it helps them coping with incre- they inc- increases their capacity of coping yeah. with uh, the 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 frozen shoulder and what the frozen shoulder brings to them. And I think where Matt, um, you said right at the beginning when I, when we were talking about the the prognosis around frozen shoulder syndrome, about having that potentially awkward, honest conversation about the time frame and what what the individual can expect. I think part of that conversation needs to be a, a, an honest appraisal of what we can what we can offer them in terms of helping them through that. Um, and it and it is around it's all the things we talk about normally, isn't it? It's making sure we're correct with our narrative around massage and manual therapy. I'm not going to fix your frozen shoulder. I'm not going to be able to change a range of motion that's that's currently restricted due to a, a, a very clear pathology. I, I can't change your tissue state. I can't flush out Gubbins. scar tissue in your capsule. I can't do any of that. What I might be able to do if massage is something that feels good to you is modulate your pain. And I'm happy to do that um, and work with you with that. Um, but you're in control of this. And and I'm not going to tell you, you need to come and see me however often. That's down to you. I'm here. Um, if if like Matt said, I start to see some red flags that there's a dependency building, we'll address that. But generally what I say, especially with people with um, this condition, when they say, oh, when do I need to come back and see you? That That's, you don't need to. What, what you want to decide is, is this helpful? Would you like to come? Do you think come? this mm. improves your quality of life whilst you're struggling with this? Are you financially are you in a situation where it's practical or or is that actually difficult for you um and i i don't think that's a that shouldn't be an off table topic that you should be able to be honest about that and then empower them to make that choice as to whether they want you to be part of this with them and how often they want to be coming to see you but that's all based on honesty yeah it's funny the 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 more my practice evolves in line with, uh, you know, the best as I understand of what's going on underneath my hands. Funny enough, the more often I have that conversation with clients, you know, um, yes, we're talking frozen shoulder syndrome, capsulitis today in particular, but actually that is a conversation I have on a really regular basis now. And, and as a result, it becomes less challenging to me because there is definitely that kind of cognitive dissonance to begin with we're like but hang on a second my, my job is massage if you're not here i can't be charging you um but but actually uh you know changing the mindset is actually my job is supporting you um and i'd rather see you less frequently and know you're doing well than see you every week and kind of i'm not necessarily contributing i mean i've got a client at the moment who was referred to me um recent neop um, uh, leading up to that knee up, um, off, off the leg, massive atrophy of, 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 of muscles, really keen to get back to, to their activity, which is also their livelihood. Um, uh, and, and has been told they've not progressed as quickly. I mean, it's fairly minor surgery, but they haven't progressed as quickly as, as they should have done. And, and actually in conversation with them, a lot of it is actually, they've just not been given the right expectations of what to do and when, and, and what is what essentially they needed someone to tell them their body is robust and, and to demonstrate to it. And again, all I've really done is use massage to modulate the pain, get them to prove to themselves that, they're in control that their body is robust and fundamentally i've done nothing to affect the robustness of their body and their tissues and then gone so effectively now you've got your plan you come and see me when that fits with your plan and it's the same for this yeah i think i think one of the great things that <laughs> one of the great things that covid's given us <laughs> is the um is the confidence to do some online stuff as well and i think there's a real opportunity there with um particularly this condition is that we can give people that option of you know yes manual therapy and massage can really help in modulating your pain um but you might not always need that and actually sometimes what you what you might need is what we discussed earlier is 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 some information about it some some help and advice on how you can um adapt things in your day-to-day life to make things a little bit easier and what a lovely way to do that if somebody's at home on 
Zoom or, you know, on an, another video call and you can see them in their environment, see them what they're struggling with. And, and you can, that for me helps balance that question of dependency because they're understanding that I, I don't just help them by laying hands on, I can help with those other factors as well. Anna's desperate to jump in. I was thinking about unicorns. No, 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 uh, jokes aside. But also, let's not forget that as soft tissue therapists, we don't only have our hands, and obviously we have communication and everything that we touch upon, but also our scope of practice allow, allow us, and for all those listeners, all the scope of practice allow them to, to provide exercise advice. There is so much that can we do. We can, we can load that, that joint below the you know the what range of motion they have we can actually load in fact adam mickens in his fantastic um presentation at therapy live last year which you know i i recommend everybody to to watch um he actually recommends slow eccentric um slow eccentric training for it because you get already an increase in, t as, as he says, an increase in tissue length, increases in joint range of motion, and increases the strength. So there are other things that we can do. We can do also another one that I particularly, particularly like with people with frozen shoulder, and also it's a little bit of a, it helps if there are also some pain beliefs around it and some 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 muscle guarding because of pain beliefs is driving drive uh, or do a movement which is driven by another part of the body so i don't know you know put your arm on on the radiators and walk away from from your hands so that you're actually achieving shoulder flexion without actively flexing the shoulder or you can do the same with abduction. You put your hand on, on, on a table and you're moving away with your body from your hand. So there are plenty of strategies that we, we do have in our, in our skill set, which we can use to support the person to maintain what is, maintain the, the, the range of motion that they have, keeping the strength into their range of motion and helping them and supporting them as a person. And that's very much a, um, you know, a frontline, who, who, whichever healthcare professional, the, the individual's been to see a, a frontline treatment for capsulitis is to, to keep them moving as much as possible. Um, and, and again, Anna, like you say, with, you know, that's where we can play a really nice role in, in f helping them figure out ways of doing that. And I think it's, I think all three of us feel we we want to give therapists the confidence to you know to, don't be um, don't be frightened of these conditions and frightened of of challenging people in these conditions to you know it is safe to move um, within the person's capabilities um, and it's safe to encourage them to do that and help them play around with movement um, to find a way of being able to achieve that and and they will really appreciate that because that then also helps them figure out how to how to get through day-to-day -day life. So I reckon that's a pretty good point to jump in with what are our uh, theory to practice? I see, I do remember the name of our own feature, honest. So what are the theory to practice uh, elements that we'd, uh, we'd, we'd send people off with today? And I also believe, Anna, that you might have a, a little quote or a little bit uh, of a statement from um, an absolute expert in this field. So do you want to end with that or should we go theory to practice? Yeah, I, th I think, that, I think uh, that, that statement would be a nice closure because I think it encompasses everything we said. Perfect. So from a theory to practice perspective, because of clear, clearly we've not planned this at all. Uh, should we go around and pick one each? <laughs> Excellent. Um, Becky, <laughs> what would be your theory to practice out of what we've discussed today? Uh, what would be the one point that you would uh, encourage therapists who are perhaps less familiar with, uh, with dealing with frozen shoulder? What, what would it be that you would send them off with? Take your time. Take your time to figure out what the client needs from you. Take your time to figure out how you fulfill that role for them. Um, 
how you can be that team member that we've discussed. Listen to them, listen to what they need from you. Why have they chosen to come and see you with this particular condition? What are they hoping for? Are those realistic hopes? Are those things that you can you can help with? And when you get hands-on with the client, again, be be patient. You know, take things slowly. It's all about building, for me, it's all about building that safety, that comfort. Um, go at their pace with what they can tolerate um, and, and build that relationship. I was going to say, I think you managed to stretch like five different points into that one I know, point. I'm good, aren't I? You are, yeah. Um, Anna, what would, what would be your take on that? Got to go really practical. Um, just repeating a little bit what I just said. Um, look at what range of motion they have and work with that. And strengthen the range. Try to maintain the range as much as possible because we know that also strength work will or modulates pain, like everything modulates pain. But try to keep the person doing activity and some strength work on the on those movements that they, they can do, especially eccentric. And yours, Matt? Well, I suppose for mine, I'm going to go, uh, I'm going to stick with the, the exercise, but I'm going to go a bit more broad and actually pick up on, on uh, one of Becky's earlier points, which is um, as part of your a consultation with them, find out what, what meaningful activities occur in their life and, and uh, discuss how you can help them um, modify those activities so that they, they can retain them and, and, and keep that meaningfulness. I think, I think that was a, a lovely point. So that would be um, definitely, definitely my point there. Okay. So in which case, in order to, uh, to wrap this really awesome clinical chat up, let's get clinical, clinical. <laughs> Anna, what, what, what statement have you got? There? So um, I asked Adam Mickens, who, if you're not following him already, please do. Um, he's, a, he's, like Matt said, he's a specialist in upper limb. And uh, I particularly like, I like his work, but I particularly like his Therapy Live 2020 talk. Well, when I finished watching it, I thought, how lucky are those clients to have him? Because he, he just demonstrated so much understanding and, and compassion towards towards his, towards the, the people that come to him with a frozen shoulder. Anyway, so I asked him, I said, Adam, what do you think should be the number one priority for practitioners when they are dealing with a person suffering with frozen shoulder? So his answer to me was, so the number one priority is to first ensure it's best disabled that nothing serious or sinister is masquerading as a long-lasting, constantly painful and restricted shoulder. Once that has been clear, then offer shitloads of honest, realistic, but optimistic advice, reassurance, support, and motivation to address all the biomechanical, social, psychological, and lifestyle factors contributing to frozen shoulder. He does know his stuff, doesn't he? Yeah, and yeah, I, I, that's why I thought he, he really wraps up what it is. And ultimately, you know, when we finish our conversations, it's complex. There is no one thing. It's complex. And again, um, and I think actually he was a slide on his uh, therapy live we are treat where he says we are treating the person with, with frozen shoulder and not the frozen shoulder. Yeah, absolutely. Um, no, that's a great place to end, so we won't go any further. But as a, as our unofficial guest, because he didn't make a, a personal appearance, we quoted him instead. Yeah, that's Adam Meekins. If you're not familiar with him, his moniker on all the socials, I think, is the Sports Physio, uh, and his website is the Sports Physio. Well worth a look. Um, absolute genius when it comes and he does to some really great course you know but really great courses on shoulders yeah so well worth absolutely 100 percent. so thank you adam for uh for well providing inadvertently some content for today's podcast and uh and thank you actually we didn't mention to begin with but uh a lot of uh this well this idea to do this podcast actually came from a lot of um, clinical conversations we've had with with therapists over the last couple of weeks in various forums that we hang out in so um uh, the you know we love to discuss this this type of stuff as well. We realise we haven't done a huge amount clinically recently. Um, so if you've got any other suggestions um, 
Come and find us, Massage Collective, on Facebook, Instagram, and probably one day on Twitter when one of us can <laughs> remember to log in and tweet. Um, but give us some suggestions. We love to talk clinical stuff as uh, as well as the, uh, the more, uh, I don't know, cerebral stuff. So thank you very much, and we'll see you all next time. Bye, Bye now. Bye.